Well, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. What beautiful weather we have. I hope you're doing okay out there. Are you doing all right? Wave at me if you're still conscious. Okay. I should have taken a picture of that. That's a lot of hands. Well, it's good to uh, be able to worship together outside tonight. I'm planning on preaching for about a half hour or so, uh, or whenever I pass out or you pass out, okay? So, um, in case my kids ask, I am well hydrated this morning, uh, this afternoon. Uh, they have, they take a special burden for me to always stay hydrated. When I was a kid and a teen, we, we didn't really hydrate much. We didn't have water bottles, uh, but my kids are making sure I'm staying nice and healthy and uh, drink up here. I also brought with me, Pastor Dan gave me a hanky uh, just in case there's uh, some sweat that breaks out. So I think we should be good for whatever um, might come. Some of you have been looking for me to use a hanky for quite a while. That's that's preaching, right? He's, he's sweating up there. That's really good stuff. Well, I think I'm going to sweat regardless uh, this morning uh, as we go through this. Um, uh, I think this is a good reminder to us as we meet out in a field that uh, we are the church. A church is not a building. We're thankful for the buildings and properties God has given to us, but we are the church. If someone took our building away, we would continue to gather by the grace of God. If it uh, perhaps in some way grew illegal or something, we would still strive to gather and obey what the scriptures say. And so I think this is a good reminder uh, to us as the church. As we consider Romans chapter 6 this morning, I had the privilege of uh, going with my wife Carissa this week uh, and traveling a bit in the middle of the week. We did kind of this insane trip on Thursday and Friday. We drove to Moorhead, Kentucky, which is right off of I-64, uh, several hours, maybe eight or nine hours west. And then uh, we came back through Roanoke uh, in order to be able to see my two sons play football uh, my son Levi, of course, plays for Atlantic Shores Christian in the area here, and so we got to see him in Roanoke. And then my son Andrew uh, plays in Moorhead, Kentucky, plays college football. As I was uh, interacting with my son Andrew this week, I was reminded of the commitments and the demands that were made of him as a college athlete. Uh, he gets up early uh, on most weekdays, and he stays up late so that he can stretch and run and lift and hit that's what college football players do. Stretch, run, lift, hit. And uh, honestly, he only likes one of those things. He likes hitting, uh, maybe lifting, but that, the, other, the other things he could do without. But uh, his coaches often remind him that the play at the level that he is affects every area of his life and that if he does not work every day to get better, they will find someone else to play a spot. When a conversation we had with him at lunch after his game, the day after his game, he explained to Carissa and I and my, my father uh, how hard this commitment has been for him. And he talked about several other players who'd quit in the weeks just leading up to this first game. Uh, he also explained that it was especially challenging for him and that he, he as well struggled with motivation until he got to play the night before. Um, there was something about wrestling with other 300-pound men in the trenches that rekindled his love for football and uh, challenged him uh, and reminded him his love for the sport. You see, when he got to do what he loves, it motivated him to do all the hard things again. Now, perhaps that can be an analogy for 
what we'll see today in Scripture. Perhaps some of you today are in this field and you feel like quitting on your commitments to God. It's my prayer that as we engage God and His Holy Scriptures this morning, as we learn the truths from God in Romans 6 and 7, that God will use that to rekindle you in your fight against sin and your determination to serve God. I think the main point of the end of Romans 6 and the beginning of Romans 7 is that we are not free to sin, but we are free to serve. So last week we started into Romans 6, verses 15 through uh, 23, and we noticed that uh, Paul is answering a second question about his theology of grace. That question is found very specifically in verse 15, chapter 6, verse 15, when Paul asked, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Now, to answer this question, Paul speaks about those two parts, grace and law, in Romans 6 and 7. At the end of Romans 6, he says, because we are under grace, what does that mean in relationship to our sin? And then Romans 7, 1 through 6, because we're not under law, what does that mean? And in a sense, what he's doing at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 is he's making two parallel points, okay, as I see it. So if you don't pay attention to other things in the sermon today, these are, I think, the main points of the end of Romans 6 and Romans 7. He's attempting to demonstrate in Romans 6 that we are set free from sin so that we might be slaves to God. And then in chapter 7, he, uh, if you look in verse 4, you can see this stated quite clearly. We're set free from sin so that we might belong to another. And then he tells us who that is. We belong to Jesus, the one who's risen from the dead. Okay, so the two points are we are slaves to God and we belong to Jesus. So he's making a similar point. And we're going to work through both of these uh, this morning. Last week, we considered a new analogy that Paul brought into his discussion of law and grace and sin, and that analogy was slavery. Uh, remember, uh, he had used the analogy of baptism early in the chapter, but now it's slavery at the end of chapter 6. You just see the words for slavery all throughout there. And what, what Paul does is he explains that every person is enslaved to one of two masters. One of two masters. One of the masters is tyrannical and abusive and afflicts us with death. That master's sin. The other possibility for us is uh, that we would be enslaved to God. And he leads us to, uh, as the text says, holiness and righteousness and eternal life through Jesus. And so in light of those two possibilities for masters, Paul in verse 19 reminds us of a command that he had given earlier. He says, you know, in light of these things, you, you can either be enslaved to one of these two things. What you need to do is you need to present your body or the members of your body as slaves to God for righteousness. Like this is a simple choice and, and here's the command. This is what you need to do. And it's a good reminder to us, colonial, of the need for us day in, day out to pre, be presenting our body as slaves to God. Um, but then in verses 20 through 23, as I see at the end of the chapter, Paul gives the reasons why 
we should present our members as slaves to God. And there are two of these. So the first one is found in verses 20 and 21. Look, look there in your Bible, Romans 6, 20. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul's first reason that we should present our bodies as slaves to God is a negative one. He challenges the Romans to reflect back on, Roman believers, back on their former slavery to sin. And he says that it resulted in two things. It only brought us shame and death. In other words, as I see in verses 20 and 21, what Paul's saying is you can't afford to go back. You don't want to be back under the slave master's sin because it results in these two things, shame and death. The idea of shame, I think, is clearly presented in verse 21, meaning embarrassment, dishonoring of ourselves. Sometimes I'm amazed at how believers recall their testimony in the presence of others. Some will spend quite a bit of time talking about all of the different ways that they showed depravity before they were a believer. They'll talk about their former immorality, their former drunkenness, their former, uh, you know, slander and deceit and hatred and abuse and all of these things and present it in such a way as which, in which they're almost glorying in it. Whereas Paul's perspective on these things are, are now different. He says, now that we reflect back upon these things, what, the, what, what is our response? It's shame. We're ashamed of the way we used to be, to be. So Paul says you can't go back because all of that just produced shame for you. To that he adds the ultimate end of our former way of living as an unbeliever. The ultimate end he summarizes in one word, and that word is death. Now, the word death in Romans can speak of either physical death and or spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. Or it can speak of both of those, which I would call something like total death, physical death, spiritual, eternal death. In this passage, if he's highlighting one or the other, I think he's highlighting eternal destruction. In other words, Paul considers here the ultimate end of sin, which includes the most ultimate expression of death, which is eternal destruction in the fires of hell. So he's giving us reasons, right? He's giving us reasons why we can no longer serve sin because its end is death. It's eternal destruction. Why would we do that? But then he adds a positive reason in verses 22 and 23. Positive reason for presenting our bodies to God. Look at verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here Paul uh, demonstrates that the results of being enslaved to God are so much better. Slavery to God brings fruit. And it leads to a desirable end. 
You see, because we're slaves to the greatest master we can imagine, we get, the Bible says, sanctification, which comes from the word for holiness. We get holiness or growth in holiness and eternal life. I want you to think about this for a moment in the field. Think about ultimately where your faith in Jesus Christ goes. It takes you to the point where you will gain or experience eternal life with or through Jesus. Ultimately, when we pass from this life to the next, we get to enjoy the life that Jesus now experiences in heaven. We get to live with him forever and ever. And the Bible says that's a free gift from God for those who believe in Jesus. It's not wages, right? Wages are payment to someone who deserves or who's earned something. Sin is what gives payment. Sin pays people what they deserve. And sin's payment is death, death, and more death. But not with God. God gives a free gift to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question you should be asking yourself in this field is, am I in Christ Jesus? I want the free gift of righteousness. I want the free gift of eternal life. The question is, are you in Christ Jesus? I would ask you, have you identified with Jesus by believing in him alone for your salvation? If so, if that's true about you, then you will not be lawless. No, you will be sanctified, you will become holy, and you will live with God forever and ever in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, since we get these fruits, since we get this end, Paul's point is this, serve God, not sin. You see, there are good reasons to obey God in our world and not sin. And being under grace does not mean that we are free to sin. It means we are enslaved to God. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our sermon is I want to work quickly through Romans 7, 1 through 6. And I want to talk about Paul's second, the second part to his answer about being not under the law, but under grace and how that affects sin. And it's in Romans 7 that Paul turns his attention to sin. It's mentioned many times throughout the chapter. Actually, I said sin. He's been talking about sin all along. He turns his attention to the law. The law, Romans 7. <clears throat> now, Paul has mentioned the law many times in Romans already. He started in chapter 3. Mentions the law there. He mentions it in every chapter since Romans 3. But it's not until Romans 7 that he will deal with believers and their relationship to the law in a more thorough way. Now, when we think of Romans 7, I think many of us think of the great struggle that is uh, described later in the chapter. I know that because I've heard many of you come up to me. You come up to me after sermons in like Romans 1 or 2 or 3, and you say, I can't wait till we get to Romans 7. <clears throat> can't wait to, you know, we, we can talk corporately about what this struggle is. You know the struggle that Romans 7 describes, where, where Paul says, uh, I do not do the things I want to do, and I, I, uh, what, I don't do the things I should do, you know. And, and he, he goes through that description. 
I think most people think that's what Romans 7 is about, but I would suggest that the primary point of Romans 7, the primary theme, is about the law and how new covenant believers in Jesus Christ are related to the law. And that even goes down into that discussion of Romans 7. Now, as he finally deals with this question in a Roman setting, it would be quite a controversial issue. How are believers related to the law of Moses? We'll see that more clearly in Romans 14 and 15. Those two chapters will find believers struggling uh, with knowing what to do uh, with um, certain Sabbath regulations, food laws, and so on. I imagine some of the Jewish Christians who returned to the city of Rome after being deported come back to the church at Rome six years later, and they, they wonder why those who follow Jesus in Rome, who claim to be followers of his, don't seem to care much about the law of Moses anymore. They like changed everything that matters to a Jewish Christian, perhaps. Why, why are we not talking about Moses' law anymore? And why, are, why do we feel no obligation to obey it? So this controversial issue is one that Paul addresses here. And the question that they might ask, is this true? I mean, are Gentile believers really casting off the law? And is that right? I mean, is it right to cast off the law? So in Romans 7, 1 through 6, Paul will answer that. He will explain how believers are not under the law and what that means for them regarding sin. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through these verses with you briefly. And I just want to use like one key word to describe each part. There are four parts. We'll go quickly through it. The, the first thing you need to see is verse 1, and the key word is principle. A principle that Paul establishes, a general rule. Look at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know uh, the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Here, Paul states this principle with a leading question. At the end of the question, we really get the idea of the point he's making. He asks whether the Romans know that the law binds a person for as long as he lives. That is, the law's authority extends over a person for so long, for long, but, but only as long as that person continues to live. Consequently, when someone dies, they are free from the binding authority of the law of Moses. That's the principle in verse 1. Did you get that? All right. When someone dies, they're free from the authority of the law of Moses. To this, Paul adds, adds an analogy. Okay, that's your key word for verses 2 and 3. Okay, so look down in your Bible at verse 2. It says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she's not called an adulteress. Here Paul adds an analogy based off of the principle he just given in verse 1. Now to understand the analogy, what you need to first know is that women uh, had no rights of divorce within ancient Judaism. Paul's analogy, I think, follows that line of thinking then, and he explains 
that the law of her husband prevents her from marrying another uh, man while her first husband lives. As a matter of fact, it's quite clear there, isn't it? As you keep reading, it says she will be called an adulteress if she marries another while her husband lives. Okay, that's the analogy. Now, I got to say a few things about this. Okay. First of all, the point of this text, I don't believe, is to give a full theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That's not the point. There are only two verses. Other important texts must also be considered to get a complete theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I think what is found in this text is consistent with other biblical texts, but there would be other passages that you would need to go to, like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 7, for instance, uh, to get a full theology. Now, the main point of the analogy in this passage is this. You ready? That's why Paul uses this illustration about divorce and remarriage or death and remarriage. The main point is death changes one's relationship to the law. And death allows one to be married to another. Okay, so just kind of mark out that main point. Death changes one's relationship to the law and death allows one to be married to another. That seems to be clear from the analogy, okay? Now, that's when Paul applies the theology and the analogy to believers and the entire law of Moses in verse 4. So, if I were to put one word over verse 4, I would put the word application. So, Paul establishes a principle. He gives an analogy about divorce and and, uh, marriage and death. And then he gives an application. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, this is an application to believers, to Roman believers, to us, I think, by extension. And it's, it's a little bit complicated. Now, Paul's application does not correspond point for point back to the illustration he just gave. It's not directly parallel, and I think Paul has reasons for doing that. So we shouldn't be looking and be thinking, well, who's the woman in the analogy? Who's the husband? I don't think that's the point. Instead, Paul wants to emphasize something spectacular about Jesus with this application in verse 4. I think Paul does it this way because he wants to identify our union with Jesus and what Jesus' death accomplishes for us. And so in verse 4 in your Bible, Paul's application states that believers have died to the law. He says, you have died to the law. And then he explains how you've died to the law through the body of Christ. Okay, In other words, there is a death which releases the law's authority over you, Roman believers, and that death is whose death? You still awake? It's that one way you're supposed to answer any question I ask. Whose death? Jesus, thank you, you're awake. Some of you. That death that releases us from the law's authority over us is the death of Jesus. 
Okay, so the point he's making in these verses is we are free from the binding authority and the regulations of the law of Moses over us because Jesus died. And that death, as we're unified with his death on the cross, frees us from the regulations of the law of Moses. That's why we're not doing all of the Jewish ceremonial and civil things today out in this field. That's why we're not offering sacrifices this morning out in the field, and so on. Now, there are different ways of explaining what this means for believers, and I'm not going to get into all of this today. I'll do it when we're in the air conditioning some point in the future, okay? Some think what we need to do is we need to break the law of Moses up into three parts, a civil, ceremonial, and moral part, and some of you probably believe that. I used to believe that. And say the civil and ceremonial parts we no longer have to obey, but the moral parts of the Mosaic law are what we need to do. I think instead there's a little better way of explaining things. And I think uh, the point he's making is we are not under the regulations of the law of Moses anymore, although we can benefit from its revelation. It's still scripture, and it teaches us things about God, things about mankind. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are not obligated to obey the laws of Moses. Now, many of those laws are repeated in the New Testament, given to us as the church that we must follow. Many of those reflect God's character in that way, and so we must obey those that are repeated for us. So the main point is we're free from the binding authority and regulations of the law. Now, I think it would be important for me as a pastor to warn you and to help guard you against people in theology uh, who would want or would want to pressure us to obey the regulations of the law of Moses or perhaps who stress roles that are not found even in the law of Moses. See, this is a common tactic, I think, still for false teaching. There's still false teachers who would bind our consciences with regulations from the law. People who do this, do this often when they're giving advice. For some reason, I've noticed in the fields of parenting or diet, uh, for instance, and they suggest that Moses' law should guide us when we do these things. But men and women, Romans 6 and 7 is quite clear. We are not under the law. We have died to it. We are only under one Lord. That's Jesus. And we mustn't allow others to pressure us to obey these mandates. Now, this does not mean that we are lawless. And it does not mean that the law of Moses is a bad thing. If you're responding to my preaching this morning by saying, well, then is the law of Moses a bad thing? then you're, you're following Paul's argument because that's what he's going to do at the end of Romans 7. He's going to show us the law's not bad, it's good. It explains how God uses it with unbelievers in our world today and how God has used it historically. Um, but, but, but Paul is really just giving an application to believers. We're, we're, we have died to the law so that we could, he, he then says, so that we might belong to another. You see that? Verse 4. His application isn't done yet, right? He says, we have died to the law so we might belong to another, right? Who's the other that we are to belong to? Jesus. And this is remarriage language. And when we, we've died to the law 
so that we might belong to one who was raised from the dead, Jesus. This, this does not mean that we're lawless, right? We, we now belong to Jesus. Uh, now, I want to close by looking at verses 5 and 6. We're almost done. We'll look at the explanation. Again, one word to summarize verses 5 and 6, where, where Paul further explains what being uh, free from the law means and belonging to Jesus and bearing fruit for God. Look at verse 5. For, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here, Paul's explanation moves in verses 5 and 6, and perhaps you picked this up. It's pretty simple to see. He moves from how we used to live when we were unbelievers in verse 5 to how we live now, verse 6. You can see this with the words while, for while, or it could be translated when, for when we were in the flesh, this is what was true of us. And then in verse 6, but now, uh, things are different. When we were living in the flesh, our previous existence as an unbeliever, our sinful passions were working death in us. That's what verse 5 says. The word passions is interesting. It's a word normally used in Paul's writings of sufferings. Seven out of the nine times you can just translate sufferings. And I, I think passions is good, but I think there's like this really negative connotation that Paul uses with it. These sinful passions that produce suffering and death. Paul sees them, these sufferings, uh, as leading to death. So, can the law deliver people? Is that the right answer? I think Paul's answer would be no. Actually, what the law does, it stirs up sinful passions within us more and more so that they produce death for us, or death is produced. But, but then what is Paul's answer? Well, I think that's what verse 6 is about. Now, however, he says uh, that we've been released from the law, but not so that we can sin. We've been released from the law so that we could be, we've been freed so that we would serve in the newness of the Spirit. I think what he's doing in this verse is he's just introducing the new way of life for believers that involves the Spirit of God. Okay, I I would translate it something like uh, the newness that is the Holy Spirit or the newness that comes from the Holy Spirit. We've worked through this text. We've tried to understand it in its detail. But I think the point that Paul's making is, if we're concerned that lifting the law of Moses and his regulation would make us lawless, uh, then we need to understand that as believers in Christ, we don't belong to ourselves. Sin doesn't reign and rule over us. We belong to Jesus And we serve God in the newness of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what Paul will do with the Holy Spirit is he will wait to talk more about the Spirit to Romans chapter 8. And that's what the whole chapter is going to be about. He's not quite done talking about the law yet. And you can see that even in that last phrase, we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We don't. We don't serve anymore in the oldness of the written Mosaic Code. 
All right, and I think uh, this, of course, will be the, Paul, the point that Paul makes. So if you've been here today and you've followed along through the sermon, perhaps even if you weren't able to follow every piece, what's the main takeaway for us? <clears throat> the main takeaway is we are not freed from the law so that we can sin. We are freed from the law so that we serve through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. You see, being free from the law does not produce lawless people. When those people are united to Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Instead of asking, what does the Mosaic law require of me? We might ask, what does Jesus require of me? What did Jesus teach? How did he live? That perhaps could be a better way of looking at the Christian life. And I think the point he's also making is that this is the only way to bear acceptable fruit for God. The only way is through being united with Jesus in faith in his death and resurrection and through walking or striving with the Holy Spirit who's been given to us as believers in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today in this field and you have not believed in Jesus alone for your salvation, I need to tell you in love that you will never be able to please God. You will remain a servant of sin. Maybe you've even explored other churches before and found that they talk about rules and laws as a way to please God. That's not the right way of looking at it. Hopefully that's not what you would hear at Colonial Baptist Church, and I'm convinced that's not what you would hear from God's holy word. So I ask you today, won't you trust in Jesus alone so that he can help you serve him in the new way of the Spirit? So being free from the law does not mean we can sin. Instead, it means we belong to Jesus. We're enslaved to God. We belong to Jesus so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit. May God rekindle our desire to say no to sin and to serve God in the new way of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the Lord that are here today. I thank you for all of our guests as well. Some of them perhaps know you as Savior and perhaps others do not know Jesus. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would see the clear teaching of these texts that if we know Jesus as Savior, uh, we are slaves of God. It's a joyful slavery, but we're slaves of God that will lead to eternal life with Jesus and, and that also we belong to another. We've died to the law so that we could be married to another. And that that other is the one who raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to truly and honestly think of our lives this way. Help us to think of our workplaces like this. May we think of our workplaces as opportunities to serve God, to demonstrate that we belong to Jesus in the way that we talk and the way that we live and the way that we uh, point others to the joy of the gospel of Christ. May it help us as we go to school. May it help us as we serve at home. Lord, this week, may we say no to sin, say yes to presenting our members as weapons for righteousness because we know that we belong to you. Lord, I'm mindful of what you say in 1 Corinthians 6, what the Apostle Paul says, that we have been bought with a price 
Therefore, we are to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are his. They're yours, Lord. Help us to joyfully submit to the slavery described in this passage. And our master, God, help us to joyfully submit to this new marriage in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use us, that you would use us in ways we couldn't even imagine. Or to an unbeliever in this field today, I pray that they would see that uh, rules, laws aren't the way to please you, but that a relationship with Jesus is. And we would thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.